Well, we're at the last of our uh, sermon series on the Gospel of John. The volume still seems just a hair loud to me. You can turn it down just a little bit? Thanks. Uh, our last in the uh, our series on the Gospel of John, again, focusing on this idea that if you want to know what God is like, then you look at Jesus. And hopefully we've been able to experience that through all these months of going through John. And uh, actually, we finished the Gospel of John last week. You remember we did the story of Jesus meeting his disciples in the upper room, and then the story of Thomas, commonly known as Doubting Thomas, uh, meeting Jesus. And then John chapter 20, which is that chapter, ends in this way. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that actually should be the end of the gospel. That's it at the end of 20. I've written these things. Um, uh, there's lots of other things Jesus did, but I wrote these for the purpose that you could believe. And thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy uh, the book. Sometime later, most likely... This chapter 21 was added, and no one really knows why it was added. I think in general, scholars believe that it was John who did it. But uh, one suggestion that I find intriguing is, and this touches on our theme of today, you remember that Peter denied Jesus three times uh, on the night before Jesus was crucified. And the story we're going to read is the story of the restoration of Jesus. Can you imagine... If you're a decade or two into the life of the church after the ascent, after Jesus has gone back up into heaven, and this guy Peter thinks he's like the boss of the church, and I don't think he was super bossy. Maybe he was. He had that personality a little bit. But this guy Peter is presenting himself as the one who, as Jesus told him, holds the keys to the kingdom. He's the leader. While all of us know that he was the one who denied Jesus on the night before Jesus was crucified. It's like taking almost the most public sinner among us, the one who betrayed our Lord and us, and making him the pastor of the whole church. And so it could be that people were starting to scratch their heads and say, this Peter is a little bit of a wild guy, and not only that, do you all remember what he did on that night? And so it may be that John wrote this chapter in order to convince the church that Peter really was restored by Jesus and was, was now ready to take up the work that Jesus had given him to do a couple of years before when he, again, gave him the keys to the kingdom. Anyway, for what it's worth, that's a possibility for this, what's commonly called a coda, um, to the book of John. So we're going to read in two parts. We're going to read the first 14 verses, not spend much time on it, but just give you a little bit of background to what follows that we'll dive into a little bit deeper. After this, so this is after the ending of the Gospel of John, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So that's seven people. 
Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And now, of course, we don't know why Simon did this. It could be that he just decided one for one night, I'm going to go fishing. Maybe we need the money or we need the funds. It could also be that Simon Peter was thinking to himself, wait a minute, um, this is all over. I only have one profession, and it's fishing, so I'm going to go back to it. There's different possibilities to think about. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So this is a recurring theme. Again, Jesus shows up, and people don't know that it's him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, and that disciple whom Jesus loved is a clue in the book of John that John is writing this, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. This charcoal fire thing, there's only one other place in the Gospel of John where these words are used, charcoal fire. And I'm sure most of you can remember where that is. The night before Jesus was crucified, standing there in the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, was a charcoal fire. And it was around that charcoal fire that three times someone or people said to Peter, I think you're one of his disciples. And three times Peter denied him. So can you imagine Peter's feeling when he comes up from this boat and he sees Jesus and some of the other disciples and they're standing around a charcoal fire? Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here again, you have another example of Jesus interacting with his disciples, with his followers in the breaking of the bread, in the eating of the meal, in this hospitality, in this fellowship together. So Peter meets Jesus around this charcoal fire, stark reminder of what Peter had done on that awful night. And Peter doesn't know where he stands. After all, he has denied Jesus at the most crucial moment. Am I an apostle? Still, I can imagine him thinking, 
Or am I a fisherman and perhaps not a super successful one at that? Peter is wondering who he is, what his relationship to Jesus is like, what his future might look like. And obviously, his heart must be broken by the remembrance of what he did on that night. I don't know if any of you or any of us have things that we've done in the past that we're just terribly ashamed of. Things that we hope no one knows about. That wish we don't know, we wish we don't even, don't even know about them. I won't go into details, but this is like 30 some years ago in public, in front of actual people, people whom I knew. I did something that was really not very nice. And I still remember that day. I remember where I was. I remember who it was. I remember what it was. And to this day, I'm still ashamed of it. Those things can hang around for a long time. And there's Peter standing there around this charcoal fire. So then this happens. Familiar story, I'm sure, to you. We'll read on, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And you can get this third time thing. Huh? Jesus denied, Peter denied Jesus three times. So here comes Jesus three times back. Charcoal fire three times. Like Jesus is rubbing it in. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This again is quite a rich passage. I'd like to really focus on two aspects in the realization that that doesn't cover by any means everything. The first one is this. How does Jesus restore Peter? How does Jesus restore Peter? And the answer is that, on the one hand, very, very simple, but very, very profound. Jesus looks at Peter and asks him one question. Do you love me? And I realize in these three questions in the Greek, there are two different Greek words used for the word love. I'm not going to go into that today. You can click on Google and find all kinds of information about that. Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me? There's no anger. 
There's no judgment. There's no pointing out what Peter had done wrong. There's no threat of punishment. Nothing like that. Just a simple question. Do you love me? And I think Peter is like stripped naked with that, front, with that question. And I think that's what judgment, God's judgment looks like. Again, we're focusing on the theme, what is God like? And I suspect that most of us here, when we think of what we commonly know in the church as the judgment day, we're go- we, we bring up this image in our minds of standing before this tribunal, before this judge, before this God, and he's going to show us this film of our lives, and he's going to point out what we all did wrong, and he's going to accuse us and judge us. And if we haven't believed or done the right things, he's going to be angry with us. That's our image for most of us. And right at this most crucial moment in the life of Peter, right when Peter deserved to have all of that come at him full blast, Jesus does none of that. Ask him one question. Do you love me? And at the same time, I'm sure that it just broke Peter. Jesus didn't have to say a word of judgment. Jesus didn't have to accuse him of anything. Jesus didn't have to be angry about anything. Jesus didn't have to threaten him with any kind of punishment. Only ask him this question. Do you love me? What does it mean to love Jesus? Well, that's a tough one. And I think probably each one of us experiences that in a different way. But what helps me oftentimes to think about love for Jesus is to think about a human love story. Some of you have had this experience of what we might call the crush, where maybe you're 13 or maybe you're 15 or maybe you're 17. I think mine happened when I was 15, my first one that I remember anyway. No, it was third grade. I'm sorry, I remember now it was third grade. Her name was Elizabeth. I still remember. I remember her last name, but I won't tell you that. I don't want to embarrass her. Do you remember that first crush? Wow. Yeah, that's kind of like love. That can happen. And then maybe you're a little bit older. You're in your teens, early 20s, and you have that first crush, and things are going well. You go on some dates. You do some stuff together. And all of a sudden, this thought pops in your head. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This might be a little bit more. And I remember the moment that that happened with Cindy. I still remember where I was and what I thought just 50 years ago. Another phase. And then, of course, there's the engagement. All the joy that that brings. Surprise or not surprise, how you do the ring thing and all that stuff. And then, obviously, the wedding day, this, 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 this um, celebration of, of love 
There's a whole other kind of experience that happens. The thrill of building an early life together with all of the joys and all of its challenges. Building a life, a home, a career. Then, of course, oftentimes children come along, not always, but oftentimes children come along, and that adds a whole new element. You continue to build, and, and your love is changing, and it's growing, and it's developing, and it doesn't look at all like it did when you had that first crush, or when you had your first kiss, or when you gave her the ring. Or when you watched her come down the aisle, it's a totally different thing, but every bit as real and as rich and as deep. Then you go through the crises of all kinds that we all go through. Illness, you fight about stuff, you don't agree about stuff, you can't figure things out, you don't know. Something happens, your parents pass away, maybe a child passes away. Whatever these crises are, and you do that together, there's no feeling of having a crush but it's, it's a deep love. Middle age, with all that that brings, then moving into the sunset years where you're thinking, how long do we have together yet, and how do we make the best of our time? All these different phases of love. And I go through all that just to suggest to you, maybe, that when Jesus asks you the question, do you love me? There's lots of different answers you could give. All of them equally valid and equally good. But when he asks you that, and when you answer him, something changes deep inside you. There's no judgment. And there's no punishment. And there's no retribution. There's just this question. Do you love me? Another way to describe what I think may have happened between Peter and Jesus on that day is encapsulated in a scene from the book The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, which is part of the Narnia series. In that book, a young girl by the name of Jill Pohl has entered a strange wood, a strange forest in the land of Narnia together with her friend Eustace Scrub. And due to a poor judgment, making a mistake, she finds herself alone and separated from Eustace and terribly thirsty. She is desperately in need of water. And then ahead of her, she sees a stream and she heads toward it with great joy and anticipation. Then she stops dead in her tracks. Lewis writes, Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, she said, she thought, it'll be after me in a moment. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. And she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. 
Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might, well as have, she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The del delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and empires, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. But I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming a step further, nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. How does Jesus restore Peter? Do you love me? Then there's another thing that I found fascinating about this story that, as you'll figure out in a minute, is not my idea, but it's just a fascinating approach to this story. It comes from Ellen F. Davis, the Old Testament professor, and she goes back to the story, perhaps you remember it, of God commanding Abraham. This will sound to you like I'm going way off the track, and maybe I am, but I'm coming back, so just be patient with me. This is the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 22-1, which I'm going to put on the screen just so you can see it, the writer says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then God goes through this command to sacrifice Isaac, the son of the promise. And Ellen Davis stops at this phrase, after these things, and says, after what things? And you could, of course, look at the, just the life of Abraham. That had enough things already by this time. He was 103 years old. But Davis suggests that it's going back further than that. Going back to the betrayal of God that Adam and Eve did in the garden going back to the murder of a brother when Cain killed Abel, going back to the whole earth and every thought of every person being nothing but violence, which resulted in the flood and Noah. 
and the Tower of Babel. All a story of steady alienation, of rejection of God. God doing everything he could to feed goodness into the world and to cleanse what was wrong and it not really working. It not being a success. Things just keep getting worse. So with Abraham, says Ellen Davis, God tries a new strategy. From now on, he will work through one man, one family, one people in order to bless all people. But God doesn't know if Abraham is going to be the man. God, and I'm quoting, having been badly and repeatedly burned by human sin throughout the first chapters of Genesis, yet still passionately desirous of working blessing on the world, now chooses to become totally vulnerable on the point of this one man's faithfulness. God choosing Abraham and saying, my blessing of the world is going to be through this man. And I'm making myself vulnerable because what if he doesn't do it? Now, I realize that if you have grown up, as I have, with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of every last detail of our lives and is working everything out, this will sound strange. This doctrine of the sovereignty of God is logical. It makes sense. And in some ways, it's the only way or a very good way to explain lots of things, even though it's veiled in mystery. But I believe it's not the only way to look at things. The Bible presents the story of God interacting freely with free people. And as storytelling and as life teaches us, we hold and learn from different perspectives. So just go along with this for a moment. God thinking to himself, I need to do something else. I need a new strategy here, so I'm going to choose Abraham. But I don't know if he's going to be faithful to me. So he sends them out on this mission. And then after the killing of Isaac has been stopped by the angel, God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And here comes, for now I know that you fear God. Now I know. Now I know I made the right choice. Now I know I chose the right guy. And Ellen Davis continues, God is totally vulnerable in this matter of Abraham. It's noteworthy that we are given no indication of what Abraham may have felt when the test was over. He just goes home. But God's relief erupts from the pages of Scripture. It is huge, global. And in your offspring, God says, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God erupts in joy and in expectation for what's going to happen. I have, ch I have chosen Abraham, and he has lived up to it. He's going to do what I've called him to do. The fate of the cosmos, God's dream for the world, 
was teetering in the balance as Abraham and Isaac were climbing the mountain. And now go to Peter again. Jesus, God incarnate, had chosen Peter to be like, parallel to Abraham, the point person for bringing his blessing to the world. Placing the fate of his plan in the hands and mouth of Peter. And what does Peter do? Denies him. And perhaps what's happening in this story is not so much that Peter himself is being renewed and refreshed. That certainly is happening. But there's a bigger thing happening. Jesus is saying to Peter, after what you did that night, just a couple of weeks ago, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Ellen Davis says, were it any other speaker, we would not hesitate to recognize poignancy in the question and anxious doubt, especially following a betrayal. Surely that is just what it is. The question pressed by Jesus is another expression of divine vulnerability. The work of salvation is dependent on this moment. Peter, after all you've done, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Yes, Lord, you know that I do. And then what does Jesus say? Okay, now I know. Now go tend my sheep. Go shepherd my flock. Go take care of all those sheep that are without a shepherd. All the ones whom I loved so much. All the ones for whom I died. All the ones for whom I rose again. I'm sending you out, Peter, to do that. And of course, not just Peter. All of us. All of us. Feed my sheep. Tend. Feed my lambs, says Jesus. Tend or shepherd my sheep. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. We have not been taught to get to know God, to understand God through Jesus. We haven't been taught that. And I hope this series has helped move us a little bit in that direction, because it's a hard thing to do after so many years. 
but especially focused on this coda, this John 21. This broken man, Peter, stands again around the charcoal fire and faces no anger and faces no punishment, but faces one question, do you love me? And upon Peter's answer hangs the blessing of the world. And I believe that that same voice comes to us today as individuals and as a church and as a community. There's not anger. There's not punishment. There's not punitive treatment. There's not retribution. It's not a slap on the hand or on the face or anywhere else. There's one question. Do you love me? And then the call to go out and bring that love of Jesus to all the sheep and all the lambs that God has put in your life. Amen.